All right, take your Bible and let's look at Luke's Gospel, chapter 6. This morning I've entitled the message, Fruit and Foundations. Fruit and Foundations. Everyone, uh, of course, loves a story. And there is no better storyteller than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He was the master at it. Perhaps that's why many people love uh, not only books and fiction and reading, but in today's day, people love uh, a, a good movie with a good, with a good story. They love to see the unfolding of it, the development of character. And for in the West, right, we like to see a good ending where everything's happily ever after. It never happens that way, but don't you feel ripped off if you see a, a movie or read a book where it ends very tragically? You want to throw the book away. You know, there are some cultures, they tell me, like the Orient, the Japanese, that sort of relish that, that things sort of end up all blown up, bodies all over the place, body parts, roadkill. And, well, that was a great book. Oh, that was a great story. No. We like it to be happily ever after, and they ride off into the sunset, right? Well, there's no better storyteller than the Lord Jesus. He's a master at it. And storytelling and the art of storytelling is still one of the great ways of teaching and teaching God's wonderful word. I'm reminded in the text, Jesus often used illustrations from his world to teach spiritual truths in the story form. Uh, who, who can ever forget the story of the Good Samaritan? There where this uh, outcast uh, helps the, the downtrodden, the beat up, left for dead man on the side of the road, on the road to Jericho. Who will ever forget that and his kindness versus those that walked on the other side? What a story. Uh, stories uh, such as the rich man in Lazarus. We'll never forget that. And perhaps it may not even be a story. Some suggest it's not a parable because there's a personal name, Lazarus, involved. And I tend to agree with that that there really was a man named Lazarus who died, and a rich man who died in that account that the Lord tells. How about the widow who lost her coin? You know, there she is. What's she going to do? And she cleans the whole house looking for her coin. And then she finds it, right? And then she calls her friends, let's have a party. I found the coin, right? If you had no money, and as that uh, desperate a uh, widow was. A coin would uh, represent food and, and perhaps a little bit of security. And so it was very, very important. She calls her friends and let's have a party. And the Lord tells that story of that which was lost was found. He's making spiritual truth in that story. And then how about the prodigal son and the response of the elder brother? Well, there are a few of his well-known stories well, Jesus, in our text today, in Luke chapter 6, verses 43 to 49, he, he comes to the very end of his sermon on the plain. Remember, we said that uh, this sermon was different uh, than the Sermon on the Mount, his very best and well-known sermon. Uh, differences not only in the content, as we get a glimpse of it, in the words that are recorded in Luke, but also in the place. It was not on the Mount. Jesus came down after having chosen the, the twelve to be with him, and there on the plain, he preaches a similar message, but yet it has distinguishable differences as well. And as he comes to the end of it, uh, as a good uh, preacher would do, as our Lord Jesus, he warns all the multitudes that are hearing him preach. And he draws it to a conclusion in this warning, and he calls all the men and women, all the boys and girls, to a point of decision. You know, you have to come to that point. You can hear the words of Jesus all day long. You can hear sermon after sermon. You can read your Bible. But uh, if that's all you're doing, it's not enough. You must come to a point of decision. And I would trust, if you've never trusted Christ the Lord, that's the most important decision. Wait a minute, he's speaking of me. Wait a minute, I am a sinner. How does he know that? I'm lost. Well, there's help. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Call upon him and he will save to the uttermost. That is the very most important decision in all of life. 
So just don't leave her saying, well, that was a good sermon, without any effect in your life. Every time you hear the word, every time on the radio, in a sermon, in the reading of it, it ought to impact and change your life. Or something's not right. And so ask the Lord to do that. You ought to prepare your heart when you come to worship. Lord, speak to me. You know what I need. As, I, as pastor opens the word and breaks forth the bread of life, you know what I need. You know what's coming later today, tomorrow, next week, next year. You know what I need. And if anything else, we all just need to be encouraged to grow in grace and in holiness and in service and in resistance of sin. That's everywhere. Have you noticed? It's everywhere. Problem is, it begins in the well of our heart. We'll talk about that. Well, the Lord calls for a decision. Uh, well, we'll see in our text, and I'll read it in a moment, two parables, two final stories, if you will, calling us to self-examination by warning that it's not enough merely to hear Jesus. As great as that would be, wouldn't that be something? We have great technologies today. I mean... You think about it, drive down the interstate, and we did that, just the, making phone calls from our car. It was a dream. You know, some of you remember the Jetsons, you know, they were able to make phone calls flying around wireless. We thought, wow, that would be something. We have lived to see that day. Wouldn't it be something if technologically, you know, they could go back into the, in the far reaches of the universe and capture the sound waves of the Lord Jesus as he was preaching? Now, if we can think it, maybe it can happen, and they'll recapture that, and we'll be able to actually auditorily hear the very words of the Lord Jesus. Wouldn't that be something? I would love that. My father's been gone a lot of years, but if he called me on the phone, now that would really be a long-distance call, wouldn't it? I would know his voice instantly. I'm saying to you, it's not enough merely to hear the voice, hear the words of Jesus. It's not enough. We must first, of course, hear him, but it must not end there. Let's look at our text in chapter 6 of Luke's wonderful gospel, verses 43 to 49. Jesus is speaking now. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. And here's the principle. For out of the abundance or the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Then he goes on, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. And when a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the storm or the torrent struck, that house, it collapsed, and its destruction was complete. I say to you in, in these few verses that there are two parables, uh, two stories calling us to self-examination. Now don't sit there thinking about your partner, your friend, the person over there. Hey, I hope they're listening. This is for self-examination. Like take uh, your own x-ray with the scripture. Lord, examine my own heart and see where I am on this. And allow it to stay right there. And then as a result of that, make needed change if there need to be changes made. Well, the first parable found in verses 43 to 49 is a parable that comes from the orchard, if you will. And the lesson here is that your tongue reveals the true condition of your heart. Your tongue reveals the true condition of what's inside your heart. It's a tattletale. And I learned in elementary school that nobody likes a tattletale. Nobody. We learned that. Seven kids in our family. 
Mommy, do you know what Terry did? <laughs> How about that? And they would often tell, and then Terry would be in trouble, right? Nobody likes a tattletale. I got news for you. Your wagging tongue, your mouth, is a tattletale of what lies beneath, of deeper things within. It's connected. You know, the right bone is connected to the, you know how that goes, right? Your tongue is connected, metaphysically, to your heart. And when it wags around, it gives a definite, direct indication of what's going on down inside the recesses of your soul, which is really your mind. That's what the Lord is saying. The parable of the orchard, the telltale. Well, A, Jesus tells the story of, of uh, fruit-bearing trees. Don't we love those here in Pennsylvania? Adams County apples. You go down to the Adams County Festival and, and uh, get some of their apple pie and apple strudel and all that good stuff. Got to have it with ice cream, though, right? And all that warmed up, good apple, fruit trees. How about peaches, peach pie? Uh, how about the bushes, that uh, beautiful bushes with uh, blueberries, cherry trees and cherries, all that. He's, that's what he's talking about here. He tells a story about fruit-bearing trees. Now, you don't need to be, get a degree at Penn State in horticulture to understand that a tree can only produce the kind of fruit that it was created to produce. Forget it. You don't have to go to State College. Rob, was that what your degree is, horticulture? Yeah, I thought so. So see Rob, if you have any questions on this, he'll back me up on it. But you don't need a degree. It's a law of nature, right? And we're not talking about where they graft in, you know, and do these kind of things. Uh, just as that cherry tree sits there on the side of the hill, boop, produces cherries if it's healthy, right? Uh, and apple trees and pear trees and plum trees and, and the bushes that make all the wonderful fruit, the raspberries and uh, all that, that wonderful. How about strawberries, right? No, that, they're on the ground, I realize. He's talking trees here. But it's a law of nature. You know, it's a law of nature. Like begets like. You say, well, I'm against that. That doesn't matter. It's not put to a vote. God sets all the boundaries. It's a reminder of it again. He sets all the boundaries of life. He does. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. You're an amazing chemical, biochemical plant. It's amazing. My son-in-law was telling me about the... Uh, the, uh, the physical activity uh, metabolically of the cell. And uh, we, he said, you could study microbiology and you, you still can't understand the, the, uh, the walls of a cell and the potassium and the sodium and how they're permeable and balanced. And if they go imbalanced just a little bit, you're dead. And uh, he said, brilliant minds, they, they try and understand it, but it's beyond them. Just... And, and you have billions of those in your body. God sets all the boundaries within your bodies, within the life, within our lifespan, within the universe. It's phenomenal. God sets the boundaries. Live within that. Find comfort within that. All of your days, there's a boundary line, even before you lived one of them. Don't worry about that. You can't add, a, you can't add an hour to it anyway, so why fret and waste those periods of time? Serve the Lord and live it up, right? God sets the boundaries. And in natural horticulture, and from the orchard, cherries come from cherry trees. Pears, it, it, that's the way it is in life. God sets the boundaries, and we see it as a law of nature. Here Jesus tells us that good trees produce good fruit, and bad trees produce bad fruit. For example, a fig tree produces figs. Now, we're... We're not too much in the figs. How many of you like figs? Oh, wow. Why do you do? I'm sorry. You could be, you could be Arabs. They love their figs. You know, I could take them or leave them. I, I like raisins myself, that kind of thing. But uh, figs come from fig trees, you know, they, and they're a variety. Grapevines produce grapes. And then on the other hand, referring to bad things, thorns and briars, right? Thorns produce... Thorn bush produce thorns. Don't you love those when you're out hunting, guys, right? Briars. I'm in the briars. I know Rick always was down in the <laughs> I saw that the other week. Down in the briars. It's so much fun when it rips the flesh. You know, like, well, 
Holy cow. Good fruit comes from good fruit. Okay, so it's very simple. Lord, we understand what you're saying here. Well, B, Jesus is teaching us that every person is like a fruit tree. I'm not saying you're fruity. You know, that means a certain thing. But he's talking about spiritual horticulture here. You can only produce the kind of fruit that is in your heart to grow. That's it. It's a law of nature. That's it. You're going to produce with your tongue, with your life, that which is from within. It is a a one-to-one correspondence. And did you know that your heart is the real you? You're not your body. I say that all the time. You are not your body. Some people, as their bodies get older and they crumble and you need this or that or this doesn't work so well and that doesn't work so well, you are not your body. You're the living soul within the body. Someday you're going to look better, smell better, be better, run faster than ever in a new body. The living soul is within you and that's who you really are. We sometimes call it the soul, the heart, the, the inner person. That's who you are. Uh, and uh, it's the real you. It's the center of your being. Well, see, Jesus tells that there is a living connection between the people we are on the inside and the lives that we lead out in the world. There's a direct connection. Did you know that your eyes are actually connected to your brain? I know you don't think about it. My little granddaughter said, Papa, I love your blue eyes. Of course, hers are really blue. You know, I didn't know she even noticed, you know. And I said, thank you, honey. I didn't go on to tell her that they're extenders of the brain, but they actually are. You know, like you see these robots, you know, and they have the eyeballs. Your eyeballs are actually extenders of the brain. The optic nerve, you know, all that's there. And, and you should know that it's, it's the great evolutionary enigma You can't have a developing eye. If you do, you have total and absolute blindness. It's not developing over millions of years. You have darkness. It all better be there. It ought to all be in the same proper relationship uh, to function, or you can't see. God made us with vision. It's one of the precious things of life, right? And there's an optic nerve that goes right directly to the brain. And your brain sees everything upside down. I know it's an upside down world, but you actually do. And, it, and the brain flips it over. And you do a little experiment. You, maybe you did that in school where you put on blinders and it turns upside down. Your brain will actually flip it over the other way. It's phenomenal. It's connected, you see. Well, your, your, your life, particularly evidenced by your mouth and tongue, are directly connected to your inner man, your inner person, your soul. And, uh, and what you say and how you live demonstrates clearly what's on the inside. For out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus said in our verse, in verse 45, your mouth speaks. It can do nothing else. There's that living connection. Well, number one, under C, the reason we say the things that we say and do the things that we do is that we are the people that we are. We are the people that we are. What we do and say is always in character. I know sometimes they'll say, well, that was out of character for him to say that. That was out of character for Johnny to do that. No, no, that's not really true. It's in character. For whatever we say and whatever we do is in character directly connected with what's on the inside. And that's the problem, right? That's the problem. We should say then, when we get caught saying or doing something evil, right? A swear word or we're angry or we um, demonstrate frustration or fear or envy or hate. And we can, as Christians, do that. You know. You know what we ought to say. Or, and, and, and if you're not a Christian, what we ought to say is when we're caught saying you're doing something evil, we should say, you know, and this is Phil Riken's word, I love it, you know, that really is what I'm like. I'm just embarrassed because usually I'm better at hiding it. You've got to love it, right? Usually I'm better at keeping it down so that people don't really see the ugliness that's really there deep within inside. Oh, my. We've said that before. Wouldn't it be awful? 
wouldn't it just be awful? Now, God knows our thoughts. He knows everything about us. And you know, there's nothing ever done privately. I was reading that in C.S. Lewis yesterday. None of us live privately, for we live before the audience of God, at least, right? Well, wouldn't it be horrible if we walked around and all our thoughts, there's a movie projector on the top of our head projecting our thoughts up on a screen. Wouldn't that be horrible? You'd hide in the basement. You'd never go outside. <laughs> like, like, ah, I see what you're thinking. You know, like, holy cow. You see? And so when it leaks out, and that's what it does, it leaks out, we go like, oh, I'm embarrassed. Oh, no. That's really what I'm like, is what Jesus is saying. That's really it. It's the world of horticulture. It's uh, good trees produce good fruit, and bad ones bad fruit. And it's a heart issue at the very core. And so we need to be honest with ourselves and honest with God in this. If the general tone of our conversation is carnal or worldly, irreligious, godless, profane, then let us understand that this is really the state of our heart. It is. And we're kidding ourselves to think otherwise. We are. Well, D, your tongue, then really, verse 45, because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, your tongue is really the sound system of your heart. I don't know if you ever thought about it that way. Jesus focusing on the words we say. So whatever is in our soul gets amplified whenever we put it in the words. Now, we're Grateful for sound systems, aren't we? Some of you probably have some nice sound systems in your home. Ken and Rachel Bosley own a company, and, and they put incredible theater and sound systems uh, in, in, in homes. A lot of them are even hotels, and they're incredible. Like, you know, like 25 speakers, you know, and we're in the roar of thunder. You almost jump out of your seat because you feel like you're right in a... In a well, and we're glad for that. And we're, I'm glad for that. There's a little microphone that amplifies when I'm, when I'm speaking so that all can hear and hear easily. Well, that's what Jesus is saying, really, is, is, is our tongue. As it uh, amplifies, uh, really, what's in our hearts and let's, and let's all see it. So Jesus tells us then that our words help us in the self-examination to make an accurate assessment of our own true spiritual condition. Here Jesus helps us to recognize that sin originates in our hearts. It's the danger within. It's dangerous in our hearts. We're born with evil hearts. You have a little baby and they're beautiful, aren't they? And kisses from a baby are wonderful, aren't they? But you know what? They, that little baby uh, not only has a human nature, but has a sinful nature that they receive from mom and dad and all the way, all the way, all the way, all the way back to our first parents because of the fall there in Genesis chapter 3. And they're sinful. And in time, they're going to evidence that. You know, we sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. The problem begins that we are born with inside it's a tainted human soul. It's a bent toward evil. It's, a, it's I want to be God. I want to be God. That's really what we're saying. Lord, we cast you off. I'm not going to be bound by your moral laws and require. I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it. I'll say what I want to do. I'll live any way I want. You see? It's, a, it's rebellion at the very heart. And we're born with that, each one of us. We need to be saved. We uh, throw God off, so to speak, and live like rebels. We want to be God. God became man to provide the only solution. Isn't that interesting, the interchange between that? Though most assume in our world and in our educational system that people are good. That's one of the tenets of John Dewey, of the modern educational system. Everyone is good. Pat them on the head. That's no wonder we have half the problems or more that... They're beginning at the wrong place. And so uh, people are not good by nature. Intuitively, we're evil. And we need to be saved. That's why Christ died. Well, Jesus tells us otherwise. We're not good. We're born with evil hearts. And it's only God. It's only God who can make our hearts good. Through salvation, through the work of the Spirit of God, through the Word of God in our life. Our hearts 
are bad by birth and we produce bad fruit. Keep your finger and look. Just look at, I'll remind you again, in Galatians 5, uh, for Paul lists a number of, of, uh, of, of the bad fruit that flows from a corrupted heart. In Galatians 5.19, he writes, uh, the acts of the flesh, it's NIV says sinful nature, the acts of the flesh are obvious. And he just gives a random list. It's not comprehensive. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. And I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Not that uh, works save. They never do. But these are indication of a problem deep within. And that's our problem. Paul Tripp wrote a book uh, he called uh, War of Words. And uh, in that book, uh, that excellent book, you might want to pick that up, War of Words. Word problems reveal heart problems. It's the basic thesis of his book. Word problems, the things we say, reveal heart problems. And he's exactly right. What he's talking here then in fruit, in this uh, parable from the orchard, the tongue that reveals the true condition of our heart, he's saying that if you are saved and you have the Holy Spirit within, the new disposition, the new nature, you still have a sinful bent, uh, but uh, God is growing you to make you like Christ. It means that you'll evidence by tongue and by life the fruit of the Spirit. And it means like this. You may write this, some of this down on the side column of your sheet. And having the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 3, it, it means that, uh, and bearing fruit means that loving others, love, joy, peace, loving others more than you love yourself. It means making sacrifices uh, when needed. It means having joy in the midst of sorrow, giving praise to God even in the midst of grief. And loss. It means peace. It means being at peace about the things that worry me. It means trusting the Lord with my worries, my future, broken relationships in life, and the safety of the people that I love and care for very, very much. I give my fears over to God in faith. Uh, peace, love, joy, peace. And my life and my tongue give evidence of it because it's right with my soul. Patience, it means having patience in times of trouble. It means not pushing and pushing and pushing to make things go my way, like Frank Sinatra, right? I have it my way. But being content to wait, to wait. Oh, that's hard. To wait. Oh, it's hard to wait. For Americans, right? We get, we get antsy if we have to wait three minutes at the drive-thru for our hamburger going to have a breakdown if they don't get it to the window in time, right? It means being content to wait and see what God will do. Patience is a mark that God's in control and I'm under his shield. Kindness and goodness, it means showing kindness and doing little things to make life better for others. Little things, we say in our family, are big things. Don't despise little things. Kind gestures and notes in, in words of encouragement and kindness. We practice that, and we have taught our children to do that. They're not uh, inconsequential. They reveal a heart that's been changed and growing in grace to effervesce. It means being faithful. A faithful life is characterized by consistent godliness so that uh, I'm as good in private as I seem to be in public. Faithfulness is one of the fruit of the Spirit, evidence of a, of a right heart within. Gentleness, giving soft answers when I feel like in the flesh punching someone out. Rather than jumping to defend myself, I, I do what my kindergarten teacher did with the key, right? And throw the key away, rather than sharing a piece of my mind that I can ill afford to give away. And finally, self-control. Refuse to go off on reckless binges and instead to resist the great pressures of temptation. Self-control. These are the evidences uh, 
in, the, in a heart that's right, evidenced in a life and in, in the tongue that speaks of the abundance of that heart that Jesus is telling us about uh, the story of the, of the orchard. Now, a few other comments that others have made. Let me give you some sense on it. Never assume that people are any better on the inside than they seem to be on the outside. Usually, people are far worse on the inside than they are on the outside. Don't believe, though, people may live wickedly, that they have good hearts. I'll hear that from time to time. I heard a mother whose son was convicted of murder say in the interview, uh, I don't remember his name, but she, she claimed that I know he didn't really mean it, though he killed him. He really has a good heart. He does not have a good heart. He doesn't have a good heart. It's a wicked heart that needs to be wonderfully redeemed. And the things that we do directly indicate the condition of our heart. Another writes, J.C. Ryle, when a person's general conversation is ungodly, his or her heart is without grace and unconverted. Another writes, this does not mean that a Christian never says anything bad or does anything evil. Well, we know that's not true, right? We still struggle with the old sinful nature. Our sanctification is not yet complete. If it was, we'd be out of here, right? The difference is in the Christian's life, when we do wrong, when we see the fruit of our old nature, we see it as evil, and it drives us to repentance of sin. And we confess it, and we turn from it, and we find restoration to continue on. Well, that's the fruit, the parable of the orchard. Your tongue reveals the true condition of your heart and mind of my heart. And so I ask, what kind of fruit are you yielding? What's a, what's a story does your tongue tell about you? And what's going on beneath the surface and in your soul? Is it a, a heart that loves the Lord Jesus with all your heart? Is it a heart that's growing in holiness and godliness and desire to serve Him? As the days are quickly passing, and soon they will be all gone gone sooner than you think. Oh, I pray that that's so. Well, the Lord doesn't end here. He ends his sermon with one other parable, a story. And it's from the world of architecture. He calls us to be those that, like building inspectors, to self-examine our own hearts and lives. Again, not our neighbors, not our spouse, not our friends, not our siblings, ourselves. Examine, pull out the measure of God's Word and use it to examine your heart. From, so we have the second parable. It's the parable from the world of architecture, and it's this. Build your life upon the solid foundation by obeying Jesus. You see, it's not enough for you to come and hear. I'm glad you do show up. And work all week and pray for hours for the preaching of God's Word so it would find inroads into all of our hearts, mind through the week, and each one of ours. So I'm glad you come. If you don't come, that's, uh, that would uh, not be good. So it's not enough to come and hear. You must go and do. It's very simple. Come and hear, but go and do is what Jesus is calling us and warning us here if we don't do it. Jesus asked those who heard him, and let's read it, verse 46. He's speaking to those thousands that were there, his disciples, and then the many, many that were there. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Now, to repeat it is a way of saying intimacy. Whenever you find in the Word of God the name is repeated, uh, it's a way of saying, I know you, and I know you very well. In our day, um, uh, perhaps uh, if you're in trouble, uh, as a parent would often yell out, not a, a, a loving nickname or short name, but I knew if my mother said my full name, okay, it, middle initial, Terry Edward Zabolski, uh, I, I usually meant I was in deep trouble. And that she knew something about me and something that I did. 
Okay, so there's a way that we speak, right, in inflection or the way we put our names. In the old, uh, in the scriptures, where a name is repeated twice, it means that uh, I know you intimately. I know everything about you. And Jesus is saying, why is it that some of you say, Lord, Lord, like, Lord, we love you. We know everything about you. We're right there. And yet you don't do what I say. I remind you, uh, Jesus, uh, the, the, the Lord, it was the pre-incarnate Christ, said to Abraham, 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 Saul, Saul, Acts 9, right? I know you. I know everything about you. These were saying, Lord, Lord. But they were not doing what the Lord had, had taught them and, and, and directed them to do. Remember, I, I, and number one, he is not speaking to those who were not following him, but those who were. I mean, there were many on the periphery. Many could care less, like today. People could care less about the Lord Jesus, care less about God's church. They're really f- far removed, sitting home and watching Meet the Press, reading the Sunday paper, eating... Uh, uh, bagels and, and cheese and, and whatever else, right? Could care less. He's not talking about it. They were actually in attendance. They were actually there listening to him, the master teacher. They claimed to know him, but they were not doing what he said. They loved to come and to listen to this amazing teacher. But it went no further than that. I'm reminded that many, it seems, in our churches today do the same thing. They do. They, they, they show up, you know, they get their card punched. We sat, we heard, we listened. You know, pastor, please be short, you know, so I can get out of here, do important things, right? Many in our churches do the same thing. And yet they leave, they come, they hear, maybe they hear, they go, and they don't do. They do not do. They say, oh yeah, I, the Lord is my Savior. And they do not do. Well, what are we together from that? What, we, what about in our own life as we're called to personal self-examination? How do you measure up on that? If every nine weeks there was a report card issued, how would you measure on that? Well, and the Lord gave the report card. Would you flunk? Would you fail? A D minus? A plus? C? Where would you be on that? Come in here, go and do. I say that many in our churches don't do it because when you look at surveys that are taken, why is it that so many lifestyles are so similar to the common lifestyle of the pagan world? They go, it doesn't make sense. Are they not hearing the word? Are they not saved? What's going on here? You know, it doesn't matter uh, what uh, the issues are. Sexual immorality, anger, hatred, division in family and homes, Lack of obedience, lack of holiness, the things that people engage in for entertainment, uh, all sorts of things, all sorts of, why isn't there much difference? There ought to be a huge difference, huge difference. doesn't mean that we're isolated bubbles, you know, we're sanctified through truth. God wants us in the world to be salt and light, but our lives ought to be distinctively different. There ought to be a beauty about it, a Christ-likeness about it as the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and builds us into the likeness of Jesus. And that's why I say I don't, I, I don't understand why so many in the churches today uh, are so much like the world. And the God's Word seems to make so little impact on them. There's so little holiness. There's so little serving. We're stingy with time. So little giving of life. So, so little genuine loving, the love of Christ, or forgiving, bitterness, you know. Oh, I'll never forgive them. We hold people. and yeah, you know, Listen, just forgive as you've been forgiven of any and all, everything. You know, don't nickel and dime people. You've been forgiven an enormous debt. A Fort Knox gold debt, you've been forgiven. Don't walk around nickel and dime, well, they this and they that, and you hold on to it, and you sort of, you know, this power play nonsense. Just let it all go. Anyway, if you don't, physically, it'll take a toll, and you'll be dead earlier, humanly speaking. Just let it go. Trust the Lord. Live in joy, right? In that, that's the way it ought to be. Really, that's what the Lord's saying. Well, B, Jesus tells a story here, then, about two different kind of builders, two different kind of of, of builders and two different kinds of people. He's talking about both of these builders are building a home, 
And there are many similarities. And these similarities warn us that it's not easy to know which is the genuine builder. You can't tell from the street. I mean, it's the same neighborhood. And the house looks fairly the same. And the house is your life. The house that you're building. That's the parallel. That's the story that Jesus is from this world of architecture is using in his closing climax, calling all of us to a point of decision. Not easy to know who the genuine builder is. I've had, uh, through these years, uh, in church life, one, two, three, four, five, about six different building projects. Some were the whole, uh, the whole nine yards of the worship center and uh, gymnasium and office. Some were additions and all that. And, uh, and the, the, the building and the builders and what they built was usually very, very good. And we appreciate that. And we've built several homes and additions through the years. We've been married 34 years, Faithy and I. And, and the one there, I won't mention where, was not as good as others. And in time, the cracks revealed, and what's this, and what's that, and why doesn't this work, and the doors, you can't close them, and what, what's that say about the builder, right? But from all general appearance, from the street, it looked good, right? It looked good. Similarities there. Both, uh, and, and in our lives, and Jesus is paralleling, both of these builders have uh, heard the word that was proclaimed, the Word of God, and they begin to build afterward. Both builders are in the same general area. It's the same neighborhood or the same block, and the houses look the same somewhat. And yet we say that because they're both hit by the same uh, storm that strikes the neighborhood. Both built the same kind of house. Both look safe, uh, but uh, they really weren't. One was going to be destroyed. The life was going to be destroyed. Always reminds me of years ago, there was a school in a small community that had, can you imagine how terrible that would be, it had a fire. And uh, the kids did not all get out, and some of the kids perished. That's a terrible thing when you trust your children to, to school, and they're there, and they're learning, reading, writing, arithmetic, and all the rest, right? In a fire, and they can't all get out, and, uh, and they die. Terrible thing. Well, the community resolved uh, that when they rebuilt, it would never happen again. And we're not going to build any of these unsafe buildings. And so they did. They built uh, the very best materials, fireproof. They put in a big sprinkler system, and, um, and they, they were all happy about that. We'll, we'll never have to, with tears, go through that experience again. Uh, lo and behold, only to find out five years later, as they were down into the pit under the basement doing some maintenance work, lo and behold, they discovered that they had the very best equipment, but nobody ever turned on the master valve for the, for the fire system, the sprinkler system. Now, can you imagine that? What a fire that guy, right? But they all thought they were safe, but they weren't safe. They were not safe. Now, thank the Lord that they found that before there was a problem. Well, these buildings had similarities, didn't they? Similarities. But these, these builders also had fundamental differences. One worked to build upon the foundation of the rock. That's what Jesus said. He dug down deep, verse 48, and he laid the foundation on rock. And when the flood came, the torrent struck the house, but it could not shake it because it was built upon the rock. This is the hard way to build. You see that whenever they're putting a building up. You know, you want them to hurry up there, get going up there. I like to see it go up, you know. But they're playing around in the dirt. They're digging the holes. If it's in the city, an urban building, they go way, way down. I remember Hans telling me with the stadium, you guys designed in Harrisburg uh, on the island, that you guys went down to the, uh, what do you call it? Down to the bedrock. That's a good thing because about, what, every 10 years it gets uh, whitewashing from the Susquehanna. You better go down to the bedrock on that thing, and you've got to go down deep. So they've got to go down deep. You've got to keep chiseling and hammering and all the rest. Fifteen years ago or so we put a pool in our backyard, and uh, the, uh, the guy, and the guy <laughs> Goodall putting it in said, <clears throat> well, we don't know what's down in the back there, 
I know there's limestone around here, so we won't know till we get into it. So we'll cut, we'll cut a channel here, and we'll get an idea. And if you don't, if you don't want to go any further, because if there's rock, because that'll mean we'll have to dynamite, and caught, you're off contract, and it goes way, way up, and so on and so forth, um, then we'll just uh, we'll put the dirt back in the hole, we'll put the sod down, throw some grass seed on it, and we'll tear up the contract. Well, uh, we're all out on the deck. I'll never forget that day. My kids, you know, were yay high, and Daddy's a hero, right? They're going to get a pool here somehow, right? So <clears throat> they got the little thing, they're cutting the channel, and he can only go down about 12 inches. And he's hitting rock, and he's hitting rock, and he's hitting rock. And I'm, I'm in a cold sweat. And the kids are all shouting, yeah, yeah. And he comes over to me. Bob says, uh, you, we've got a big rock problem here. He said, I don't know. He said, the neighbors, they didn't have any problem. Uh, but he said, uh, you got a rock problem. We're all, uh, I mean, I can fill it back in. Same deal, right? And the kids are looking at me, right? It's a game. It's a game. I mean, like, who at that point is going to say, all right, fill it in, get out of here. You know, like, you'd be, uh, you can't do it. The pressure is immense. I've had pressure in my eye. That was immense pressure. And I'm going like, we're going the whole way here, Bob, little knowing what I was saying. Well, when it was all done, Bob, uh, Bob comes to me. He's got the off-contract uh, dynamite. The guy was there a week blowing up stuff, and, and rock was flying. And uh, Bob said to me, he said, I never put in a pool that was in sheer limestone. He said, we had it. We had to carve that whole thing. He said, and I'm like, let me see the bill, Bob. Let me see the And he said, well, I got good news for you. I said, what's that, Bob? I thought he was going to discount. He said, that pool will never go anywhere. We hewed that right out of the rock. And then we did what we did. Wow. And it hasn't moved an inch. I'm here to testify that. Holy cow. Well, here's a man that uh, he built his house on the rock. He, he did the hard work of, uh, of chiseling down and in, 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 uh, in building that foundation. And that foundation, of course, in the Lord's word is the obedience. Come and hear, go and do. That Jesus is saying when you and I hear the word of God, whether through hearing a preached message on the radio, TV, the Word of God in our reading and in our study. Uh, we are to be doers of the Word. James reminded us of that, did he not? We're to be not hearers only. You have to hear first, but don't stop there. We're to be doers of it. And when we do it, we're building the houses of our life upon the hard work of laying the foundation so that when the storms come, and I got news for you. They come. Have you noticed that? I know we love today, don't we? Absolutely beautiful. What a beautiful weekend this is. But there are storms that will hit, uh, not only uh, weather storms in this part of God's world, but storms in your life. Terrible storms. I read in the paper just glance this morning. I never have time Sunday morning, but just the glance, there was a, not too far away, there was a car that crossed the line, uh, and uh, killed a motorcycle rider. A uh, guy who was out, 56, on his motorcycle yesterday, just out enjoying himself and the beauty of that. And both uh, the car driver who was distracted, crossed the line, died, and the motorcycle rider also died yesterday, out enjoying. You don't know. You don't know the storms, the storm that hit that family and all that. Little Gary uh, Coleman, did you read that? He, he either fell down and had a brain hemorrhage or a leak or something, or uh, he fell down and it caused that. Forty-two died. And the grief and the suffering and the sorrow that uh, is fill, fills life, doesn't it? I love Psalm 56. Have you ever noticed that? God uh, catches all of our tears. And there are many of them at times. There are seasons of sorrow. It's not always there. We're glad for that. But God records our tears. And he writes them in his book. That's a great verse, Psalm 56. Uh, you look at that and see. So he's calling for us here to build the foundation, to do the hard work, and to be the stable, solid people. Listen, if you're swinging between uh, instability in your walk with Christ, you've got a foundation problem. 
even say very long, there ought to be a solid foundation and that you're building your life on. So when the storms hit, in the midst of your tears, you'll give glory to God, you'll trust Him, and keep walking forward. That's the kind of life that God is building in His Christian, in His family, in your life, if you know Him. A part of our travels this last week, when we came up from Georgia, Faith had asked me for a long time, could we ever stop by in Asheville, North Carolina, and see the Biltmore Mansion? And I, I only ever knew a little bit about it, not much. The Vanderbilt uh, Mansion that was built down there, the largest personal home uh, ever built in America. It's like a castle. And so we did that. We went there and toured it. It's phenomenal, just phenomenal. Built uh, 1895 and took five years to build. Like 200 and, I don't know, 50 rooms Imagine that. We thought it would be an excellent place as if we were kids to play hide-and-seek. Our parents wouldn't find us forever. I mean it. It's, 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 uh, how many of you have seen that Biltmore Mansion? Anybody else? Larry, you've seen it. Yeah, it is something to behold. And I was standing there out in the back on the veranda looking out, and down at the bottom they have these large limestone that came from Indiana. They actually uh, shipped it in on rail, and, and, and it actually it leans in. It, it doesn't come straight up. It comes on an angle and broader at the base uh, for a foundation. And I thought, look, it's like a castle carrying all the weight of this incredible, incredible home. Now, amazingly enough, the man who built it uh, didn't uh, live past 51. How about that? All the wealth and all the money he had from the Vanderbilt uh, uh, estate, you know, Vanderbilt, uh, Con uh, Commodore Vanderbilt uh, made all his money with shipping and then the railroads, right? That was his grandfather. And uh, he built this, he was a single guy. He built this, got, got married, and uh, he only lived maybe, uh, he, he lived maybe 15 years, 13 years after it was finished. And he died at 51. He had appendicitis. I'm sure he had the best medical care of the day. In 1915, I think he died. 14, 1915, something like that. Uh, he survived the surgery. His family was visiting him in Washington, D.C. And uh, they, I asked, well, what happened? He said, well, the best they figured, he had a blood clot loosened up his heart, and he died instantly on the spot. And I said to Faith, I said, look at all the wealth, all the money, the biggest home in all America, like the great castles of Europe and whatever. Everything was stripped from him. And he died at 51. What a surprise for him. If he had any last thought when he fell down on the bed, uh, recovering from that uh, appendicitis and the appendectomy surgery that he had, it was all taken from him. Even though he had built this enormous house with this enormous foundation, well, that's what it is when you and I put into practice with discipline and diligence and purpose the Word of God in our life. We're building a foundation that will stand the test uh, of storms and floods and trouble and sorrow. Obedience, you know, is the only sound evidence of saving faith. Did you know that? Well, see, uh, uh, number three, both of these buildings then, both of the buildings, both of these houses were tested by a flood. And here's a thought. Storms in life have a way of revealing the true nature of things, don't they? They do. They reveal the true nature of what is a storm. If we build a life of obedience, it will endure all the storms that may come. If not... Jesus warns, and here's his final warning to his sermon, that we will face destruction. And he's referring to hell there. Destruction, and it will be complete. Wow. Storms have a way of revealing the true nature of things. I remember living for eight years up in the Wyoming Valley in the Scranton-Wilkesbury area as I went to college and, and then did professor teaching work and more up there that... Uh, the great uh, levees there uh, with, the, with the river that flooded in 72 and, and killed many people and was terrible, that Agnes Flood. And some of you remember that, even down here. 
Mark, you lost your boat. It, uh, you built a boat and it floated away and you never found it again. I remember you telling me that. Well, they, they, uh, they tested the levees and they thought they were secure. They thought they were high enough. And it wasn't until that terrible time of rain and flooding and drenching that finally they gave way. Uh, the storms tested the real nature of the height and durability of the levee. The same thing is true in our life. Storms do that. They have a way of peeling away all this facade stuff and, and, and get down to where we really are and the heart of matters. And it shows us for who we really are and what we need to maybe do. And maybe it reveals the fact that we're not saved and maybe never saved. Maybe Dad was saved or Mom was, and I sort of walked in their shadow. I need to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved myself. Whether young or old, it may reveal that. Or it may reveal that I am saved, but I've been far afield. Far afield. And I need to come to that place of blessing and service and obedience and holiness. Uh, Remember a few years ago, our men, we studied uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. Do you remember talkative? Remember talkative? Probably you don't remember talkative. Uh, Bunyan writes of talkative there that he was always talking the talk without walking the walk. He was always talking about uh, things, but never living it. Talkative, talkative, talkative. Let that not be us. Well, see, what, what, uh, what made the foolish builder build without a foundation? I mean, it wasn't stupid, right? Well, we could say that he wanted to avoid work. It was hard work, discipline, uh, and uh, uh, to, uh, to build into the rock and have a rock foundation. He wanted to avoid that, go the easy way. And furthermore, he was short-sighted, wasn't he? Jesus calls us to come, to hear, to go, and here's the key, and to do in the world of agriculture. So I ask, what kind of life are you building? Is it the kind of life that's built upon the rock of obedience, the rock who is Christ? If so, it's the kind of life that will endure. It will endure the storms, the torrents, and the flooding. Others around may, may collapse and fall in destruction, but yours will stand. Well, lessons for our life, and we'll be done. Number one, lesson. Your tongue is connected to your heart. Never forget that. Right bone connected to the... Your tongue is connected metaphysically to your heart. Listen to it. Listen to yourself. For it will reveal the condition of your heart. And then make steps to change what needs to be changed if the change needs to be made. Listen to your tongue. What are the things that you're saying? It's only giving you a shadow of really what's deeper inside. Number two, the, the root of all our sin is our evil hearts. That's what the Bible teaches. It, it's not evil out there, though there is. It's not evil only in Satan, the great deceiver, the accuser of the brethren, but there's evil and danger within our hearts, every one of us, our children, our grandchildren our siblings, our parents, all of us. We have a cardiac problem. It's a sinful heart, evil, wicked. Don't hear much about that. But there is such a thing, you know, as evil. There is such a thing as wickedness. And it, it generates from our hearts. We know that. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Number three, storms, troubles, that is, storms or troubles, have great value. Don't ever minimize that. If a storm reveals that you're not saved, then thank God for that and do something about it. Lord, I may not be saved. And call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. They reveal the true nature of things, whether the foundation will hold, whether the levees will hold. And we thank the Lord for that. Otherwise, we're duped. Storms reveal the true nature of things. And the happy times, the parties, the mountaintop, uh, they don't reveal much. You know, it's a more, we'll go to the beach. That's fun. You don't, not too much, you know, spiritual indicators happen, right? And the happy, the fun, and we all enjoy those things. It's when trouble hits, the storms, it reveals 
what's really there and what's not. Number four, you must do more than listen to sermons and to read God's Word. You must do more, as important as that is. You must practice truth. Lord, help me today to put these things into practice that I've learned, that you've taught me today, Lord. May the Spirit of God build these things into my life. One day leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. And you will grow in grace and be stable and hardy and firm in your own life, in your family. And it's a kind of firm life that great churches are built by an accumulation of strong and godly men and women, women of fiber and godliness, and men of sturdiness. Practice truth. Number five and last. Since this is true, remember our only hope. Our only hope is regeneration. That's it. We need a new heart. And today, if you've never trusted the Lord Jesus as your Savior, I urge you, I implore you, to call upon the name of the Lord in the quietness of your heart. Lord Jesus, be merciful unto me, a sinner. I receive you as my Lord and as my Savior. Thank you for dying for my sin. Thank you that heaven's my home. Thank you for that. I'm here to help any one of you, to counsel with you, to talk with you, to pray with you. I count it my highest joy and privilege to do that. Well, everyone loves a story, and the Lord is the master storyteller, and he sure doesn't disappoint. Ending with two stories or parables from the world of horticulture, fruit, and the world of uh, architecture, a building, and uh, what a graphic description for self-examination that we may be found with it. Oh, may God help us. Aren't you glad you're a Christian? Aren't you glad you know Christ? Amen? Amen. Amen. Me too. Let's...